0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kipalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. A criminal justice reform podcast, and I have the great, close to great merit to be here with a, I wouldn't say an august panel, but a, a panel that we have, people that we have worked with before, people that you have heard before, people who have uh, important uh, ideas and opinions about criminal justice. Uh, I want to first make note of Rabbi Yaman Shaiman, who is the CEO and founder of the Hindu Institute that is dedicated to dealing with the incarcerated individuals and their families, helping them, supporting them, and who, of course, has had a tremendous amount of experience with in this world. Also, uh, my co-host Yitzhak Kolakowski, Rabbi Yitzhak Kolakowski, who is the, uh, the chief of uh, of chaplain services at Waymart, uh, Pennsylvania uh, State Prison. Uh, we also have with us uh, someone who uh, uh, has always been a, a fan favorite, uh, cap- retired Captain Dan Sosnovic uh, uh, from the formerly of the New York City Police Department. And we also have someone here special, and we're actually... Um, we're actually catering the program around uh, our, our guest's expertise, um, and I'm going to actually ask our guest uh, to introduce himself, and uh, we'll, we'll, we will actually fly from there. So I feel a little bit like, um, uh, like uh, you know, somebody. <laughs> what was it? Uh, 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 what's my line? <laughs> a little bit asking our mystery guest to come in, but please, please do, uh, doctor.
1: So my my name is Dean DeCresci, Doctor DeCresci, and I am a forensic general adult and child psychiatrist. I'm the acting director of psychiatry at a sex offender facility in New Jersey. I'm also an attending psychiatrist at an NYU facility, uh, NYU affiliated hospital in Brooklyn, and uh, and I'm on faculty at the NYU uh, School of Medicine and teach uh, psychiatric. Uh, residents and forensic fellows. I guess, you know, one of my main areas of expertise would be sexual offending and risk assessment for sexual offenders, uh, in addition to uh, other forensic topics. So,
0: so, so, since we do have Dr. DeCrucci here, and although we have really sort of tiptoed and sometimes really gone into this subject, of, of, sex, of sex offenders and the, the registry. But I would just want to, you know, people who are listening, they should realize that this probably will be a conversation that uh, is not for everyone. Uh, it's someone that I think you should probably have discretion before you listen to it in a family setting. But I do want to, uh, I don't think we can be ostriches in terms of uh, just not speaking about it. I think that especially um, in light of the uh, Ketanji Brown hearings, uh, where Judge Katanji Brown was uh, asked uh, consistently about her sentencing of sex offenders. And the answers that she was giving uh, to the senators uh, really bra- highlighted uh, the idea that perhaps there might be a difference between gradations of various types of sex offenders. Um, because I think that uh, Judge Brown had ruled in cases of child pornography, uh, in terms of people who had downloaded and had them, in terms of in their sentencing, was sometimes less than what was federally uh, suggested. And it really brought into the public sphere the discussion about the severity of various types of sexual uh, offenses. Instead of just looking at them all as, as, as one mass of terrible things, we should perhaps look at things differently uh, and, 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 and discuss one type is different than another, uh, especially, um, and I think that's something I'd, I think we all are interested in, uh, and especially in understanding, keeping our community safe, but understanding the differences between them um I, I just want to mention i read recently about the, the difference right there uh, the difference in severity between a possessor and a receiver somebody who's actually propositioned someone uh or been involved with a minor or wanted to do it or someone who's just downloading stuff on his computer and it, it's, it's cool,
1: this type of pornography so if, if you'll allow me to kind of back up a little bit out of that uh People that, that work with sex offenders and evaluate sex offenders typically categorize sex offenses in, there's different categories, but one way to look at it is three different ways. There are contact offenses, non-contact offenses, and then offenses with no specified victim. And so the contact offenses are when there is a kind of face-to-face contact, physical contact in a sex offense, typically a rape or a child molestation, and a non-contact or and maybe a tour somebody who rubs up against unsuspecting individuals, a non-contact offender is somebody who gets sexual gratification on offenses that do not require contact or they're not looking for contact, and that would be voyeurism, exhibitionism, maybe. Uh, child pornography, the possession and downloading of child pornography may be that type of offense. And then there's the third category where there's no specific victim. And that could be consensual prostitution offenses, which are sexual in nature, but consensual, not the same as the harm inflicted in the other types. Uh, And one could also put in uh, the possession of child pornography in that category as well. So In terms of child pornography, you have the individual that actually takes the pictures and they are in essence, essentially either a non-contact or a contact offender. They're there with the child, forcing the child or uh, manipulating the child into uh, various states of undress to, to take the pictures. And then you have distributors and the distributors maybe are not sexually disordered in any way. They could be, but they may just be engaging in illicit uh, business because they're uh, interested in the financial aspect of it. And then you have the end user, and those are individuals that just download it off the Internet uh, passively, so to speak. And we categorize it that way into those three different categories because they have different offense dynamics, uh, behavioral dynamics, and different risks. Uh, profiles. And I think most people would agree that a contact offense is more severe in its uh, victim impact than a non-contact offense. And so therefore, somebody that's taking the pictures is doing much more harm to the child uh, than somebody downloading it five years later passively off the internet. So it would make sense that if the purpose of some of these sentencing was to penalize the most severest of offenders, it would make a sense that somebody doing a contact offense would get a greater sentence than somebody passively downloading child pornography. I have some thoughts about her and her sentencing because I did hear her explanation for why she gave the sentencing that she did. Uh, I'm not necessarily uh, have no real opinion about uh, her as a as a justice, but some of the explanation that she gave made sense uh, to me, and I, I can tell that to you, unless unless I'm well, kind I, of. Open. I, I,
0: well, I know that even in, in, in your role of what you, uh, if, if, what your professional role, you have probably um, interviewed and spoken with people who have been placed in into a, into the prison that you are connected to, and you probably have have have, have dealt with all these three types correct
1: yeah not the distributor because i deal with sex offenders and a distributor who is not a user and not a taker if they're just a trafficker then maybe they would you could liken to a to a drug dealer who doesn't do any drugs so when you have done
0: your psychological profiles of these three different types have you discovered that there is a there's we talk about We agree with perhaps with Judge Brown that the severity of the uh, of the sin, so to speak, is less. But in terms of your psychological profile of what that person will continue to do or where they're at, would you say that? They are there's, there. There is a a line of continuance and similarity between all three, or would you say there's a clear line of demarcation between the one who downloads than the one who actually um, is involved in, in production or, uh, or 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 who's actually gone and had contact?
1: Like, uh, yeah. So I can answer that. I mean, first of all, I'm a psychiatrist, so. I, I, I don't do psychological evaluations. I just want to clarify that.
0: Okay, Uh, I'm sorry for conflating the two.
1: But I I don't know if there is a clear line. There's always a spectrum of human behavior. I mean, human behavior is never all or nothing. It's always on a spectrum, but there becomes some invisible threshold in which somebody crosses over the line. So if we were to say that a good deal of the people that take the pictures of children and view the pictures of children for sexual gratification uh, are likely to have pedophilia, pedophilic disorder, according to DSM-5. Then what makes the groups different? Well, you know, one, one thought about that is that those that act out on their desires in a way that harms other people have substantially greater antisocial features or may actually have antisocial personality disorder. So there may be millions and there may be millions of individuals, usually men, that have pedophilic thoughts, but never ever act out on them because they're not antisocial enough to do that. They're not willing to endanger their freedom and harm other people to meet their needs. It's just thoughts that they have then maybe it takes just a little bit of antisociality to search out on the web uh, child pornography, which it's my understanding that it's not too difficult to find with a little bit of effort. Uh, so maybe they know they're doing something for which they can be caught. So that's a little bit of antisociality, but in the absence of other criminality, so they're not otherwise robbers and uh, you know, assaulters and things like that they're not very antisocial. And and then then you have the people that are willing to actually take the pictures and offend directly against children, and they are much more substantially antisocial. They are willing to harm others to meet their own needs. And those are ingrained personality patterns, and they don't go away very easily and they don't come and go they're relatively stable so that means those that are that are actually offenders contact offenders they're much more likely to do it again because they're they're able to disregard the suffering of others when meeting their own needs so they do represent a different population those that just download child pornography are on a fairly low risk level to actually offend against a physical child.
0: So, so I guess then the question, and I want to hear from, you know, from some of our panel here, then I guess the question really needs to be asked is why should we incarcerate them? Um, You know, if, if, if they're probably just going to get their jollies in their basement or wherever it is, they're downloading stuff. Why is it that we should, you know, have sting operations, break into their home, uh, embarrass them publicly, uh, bring them into, out in the open, and 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 lock them away for a couple of years, as we know many have been, and then then also be given the um, the sort of the scarlet letter of being a sex offender, and which which is a type of thing which they might not be ever able to to unshackle themselves from. So. You know, Again, I, I'm just playing, I don't know if it's devils or or, or or common man's advocate here, but I'm just asking you, based on what you have just said.
1: Well, I don't know if what your other panelists would say. Well, I mean, first of all, it's illegal, it's harmful to society, and it's harmful to the children indirectly. Obviously, people wouldn't take those pictures if they're, and distribute them if there wasn't a market for them. So they're participating in the overall societal harm to these children, even though they're not the direct, uh, you know, perpetrators uh, directly against the child. I and mean, it's the same thought that, you know, if there if there were no drug users, illicit drug users, there wouldn't be any illicit drug traffic.
0: Right. but, but are, are, are we putting them there to protect society who's, who's downloading the stuff outside when he's in the community? He might be the image of respectability, but he has a perversion. He has... Uh, as we say in Yiddish, a krankheit in his brain. That this is something. And now, okay. But
2: the only problem with that is that in order for him to uh, engage his perversion or engage his tithe, uh somebody has to be on the other end taking videos of extremely prepubescent children in engaging in all kinds of uh, sex acts. So I mean. I don't understand why we're saying that that might not be that detrimental to society.
0: My, my question is about being incarcerated and being, uh, in other words, is the imprisonment that happens in order to teach him a lesson and to get him to stop? <clears throat> or is it really to, that he might be the next or he might turn into a contact person?
3: I so mean, we, he, he's, he's already he's already causing this. He, he is Gorim. That this is happening he he has a chalik in that I think I think he deserves on top of all whatever programming he can receive in prison, which you know is you know my familiarity with it is that you know people are going to prison, they're not just being locked up in a cage and they throw away the key they're when they're in prison, they're receiving counseling they're they're going through programs to try to get them to to not offend again, but they they have. He has to realize that by by downloading these these images, he is. It's not a victimless crime. He is he is victimizing someone. You know. You you, you know. If you want to talk about where there could be a gray area, you know, I, I think in Japan they produce pictures that are you know hand drawn pictures. They're not actual photographs. Uh, along these lines. Uh, and, and and some people say, well, this is in order to, you know, to give that stimulus that these people are looking for with this illness that they have in a victimless manner, but some wonder, well, does that damage society in general because does that perhaps entice people who might not otherwise have such a taiva, and then it could lead to, that, you know, that that level where we're talking about, you know, works of... Uh, not art, but you know, art, uh, artistic works. I guess is the way you would say. That are not photographic. That that I think I can see. There's a gray area, but I don't see any gray area when we're talking about. You know, this is something that is a very horrific crime that that is creating the the victimhood. There is, he's he's not absolved just because he's uh, because he's not actually the one who's engaging in this, and also. It's a it's a slippery slope. I know uh, you know. Ramosha has a famous chuva about this, about how people become desensitized, just like there are gateway drugs. This is a gateway drug into uh, into this type of behavior. It's not. Well, it doesn't. It think, doesn't but, always stop there.
0: You, you, look you bring up an incredibly uh, solid point. That let's say our 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 our, our addict internet user instead goes to a site. Where he can just download um, drawings that are just extremely realistic, but they, they aren't really pictures of actual children. So, uh, again, this is what you're were, you were talking about. But again, this is really what I was asking our doctor tonight. Um, you say that's a gateway. Doctor, do you, do you agree that this is sort of a gateway that, that people who engage in behavior are just a couple of steps removed and maybe they will be
3: eventually? I didn't only say it's a gateway. It itself is is a crime know, that he, I, he I, has I he's it. victimizing by virtue of the fact that he's purchasing this. He, ha- he has a hey look in that. It's not he's not that far removed uh, just because it's non-contact. I don't see how it's that, you know, like like we like we all said, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be a market for this if there wasn't a market for it.
0: I understand. But the question is, should there, I'm just, again, saying, so we need to lock the, this person up because we, because maybe if we stop the demand, maybe the ultimate uh, terror of child pornography will end. That's right. Really, but not that this person needs to be locked up because he is a danger to people that he might come into contact with. That's really what I was trying to get to see from the doctor. Does this show you hmm, from a psychiatric not psychologic, psychiatric point of view that hmm, I have seen, and that's what I'm asking you, doctor, do you see people who progress? Do you see people who go from the stage of downloading to eventually wanting to come into contact and, 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 and pushing it forward? Because you know, Yes, I, I'd say that mo-
1: you know, once again, you could liken it to substance use. Most heroin addicts, started out using marijuana in their teenage years but most marijuana users in their teenage years do not grow up to be heroin addicts. So there are some people who are are not going to be satisfied by those pictures and it's going to fuel and reinforce their deviant arousal and may uh, kind of incite them to want more and to progress but not, not everybody is going to be like that. I mean, that's just the fact. And you ask why do we lock them up? Well, now you're going to the, the very basis of what incarceration is all about is incarceration to treat the person to, I, I mean, I, I see I'm not an expert in the, uh, you know, the penal system, but you know, my understanding is they put people in prison as a deterrent, uh, so that others won't engage in the same type of behavior because they don't want to lose their freedom. Not necessarily is it there to uh, correct the person's behavior or to kind of fix what what is going on with them. That doesn't seem to me to be the basic premise of, of incarceration. It's to punish people for their behaviors and make it a deterrent for them in the future and for others that they shouldn't end up uh, uh, doing the same types of things that got that other person in prison.
0: All right. Well, again, because we have unfortunately had experiences throughout our, in in, in the Jewish religious communities and beyond, of people that have been uh, incarcerated because of their, uh, uh, I guess, their perverted desires and longings and and they have raised this type of question which i think is really at the heart of a lot of what we've been talking about uh, rabbi shaiman uh, before we move on to the next point uh, did you want something did you what, what what's your sense here
4: well, well i don't think that uh, the incarceration aspect is really a great bone of contention here if someone breaks the law they get arrested uh, the question again like the doctor said um should it be for treatment, or is it just for punishment and deterrent, which that I think could, could, that point could be argued. I think uh, if somebody 's already put away, they should be treated it 's not just for punishment. Uh, I think the real argument is why, with certain offenses, particularly registered offenders, do they get registered, and why are they different if they go through their punishment and they go through their treatment? Why does their punishment not end and It seems to linger on longer than other people. I think that would be the stronger issue. But being put away, being treated, being helped, and and then a fact, if somebody goes through their punishment or treatment, well then, you know, can we not uh, allow them to go on with their life? Like somebody who robbed a store or somebody who, uh, you know, uh, sold a drug or did some other crime.
0: So you're really, Rashomon, you're really touching on what I guess we wanted to also speak about, and I referred to it a little bit in my question, which was the fact that that someone like our attic internet fellow is going to have, uh, he's going to be have to register as a sex offender, and that's something that's going to stay with him for. He, he would not, internet. rather No,
1: no possession of child pornography probably would not subject you to Megan's Law.
0: Mm-hmm. See, I, I just, I
1: that, just that alone. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe the captain. Would, would know that otherwise, but I'm pretty sure that that would not be a qualifying conviction in and of itself.
4: In, in the state of Illinois, there's no differentiation once you're a sex offender, and right now in the state of Illinois, it's lifetime, and it's all across the board, any sex offense. You're on the Registry for Life in the state of Illinois. Okay. Okay. But
2: wouldn't it necessarily be a categorical offense? In other words, what type of sex offense are we talking about? There are very different gradations
4: right in the, in the state of illinois they do not it's a state that doesn't differentiate everybody is put under the same um, title sex offender and has to be on the registry for life it, it, it it's it's a wide they they went very broad
2: okay but i I still think that there are a bunch of sex offenses that would not be included under that category, for example. Uh, an adult patronizing a po- or attempting to patronize a prostitute and getting arrested in a police thing. I don't think that person is going to be a registered sex offender for life unless, you know, unless you're telling me that Illinois has gone completely overboard, but it sounds very suspect to me.
4: Yeah. Well, it, it, it has gone overboard and, uh, but I'm here. I, I, I deal with the people that are dealing with it. Okay. So- I, it's I, I very, remember easy, very easy to get put on the sex registry, and it's very hard to get off.
3: I, I remember hearing a case. There was a, a, a bacher I know before he was from. He was having a hard time at home, and he came to the police station and said, could I just stay in jail for the night because, uh, because I, I can't stay home tonight. I'm having issues at home. And the police said, "No, we can't. We can't house you here. This isn't a homeless shelter. This is a, a police. You, you have to commit a crime." So he figured, in order to spend the night in jail, he'll expose himself to the police officer. Uh, I don't remember. I don't know which state it was. Might have been Virginia. Um, but because of that, uh, he, he, he many years later he applied to be a, a lifeguard at a JCC, something like that, and he wasn't allowed to because he's. A, registered sex offender because he, he had exposed himself uh to police officer even though it was very you know it was a rather minor misdemeanor with very extenuating circumstances he uh and and they everyone was understanding i i think he just you know was there for that one night and, you know whatever it was it was done uh you know whatever he went to he you know it was uh, whatever if he had to go to to court for it which i'm sure he did it was whatever time served it was it was what it was, but it was uh, it's something that uh, that stuck with him uh, from then on because of, of that uh, unfortunate situation. So, I, I, so again, sorry. I think it, in sorry, each sorry. state it's different.
0: So, so I think you know these points I think really are, are are germane to the movement that we have talked about a little bit on this program, but we've heard about to restructure or eliminate uh, the the registry. Um, you know, we've, you know, part of the, the the defense and the rationale for the registry is because we need to keep an eye on these people. Uh, there and there is a sense that many people have that there is a strong recidivism rate for people who have been convicted and found guilty of a of a sexual crime. Uh, so I want to read to something that, that that was from an official journal, and I'm going to quote from it. Uh, and I want to get uh, you know, do- the doctor's response and to hear from the rest of you about this. Um, the, uh, the research indicates that sex offenders, regardless of their type of sex offense, have higher rates of general recidivism than sexual recidivism. The magnitude of the difference suggests that sex offenders are far more likely to reoffend for a non-sexual crime than a sexual crime. So policies designed to increase public safety should also be concerned with the likelihood of sex offenders reoffending with crimes other than sexual offenses. And research that has compared the recidivism rates of sex offenders with those of non sex offenders has consistently found that sex offenders have lower overall recidivism rates than non sex offenders. Now, this doesn't include child molesters, rapists, but they are far more likely than non-sex offenders to reoffend with a sexual crime. But we weren't talking about, we've been talking about non-contact people, I'm just saying. Um, and so the sexual recidivism rates of sex offenders, according to this article, ranges from just about 3% um, after three years. Now it does go up uh, as time goes on. So um, this, uh, research. I, again, I can't vouch for it. Uh, what does that indicate to you, uh, Dr. Creechie, um about the type of caution we have to have uh, towards those who have been convicted? Um, do you, have you found, for example, that persons that you have treated, you end up seeing them again
1: for similar offenses? I should also clarify. I don't treat uh, sex offenders. I just evaluate them. Okay. I evaluate their risk for for the state, and you know that. But you typically psychologists do the do the do the treatment directly, the therapy that's involved because it's therapeutic treatment. Okay. But you know something that's important to. I mean, I can answer the question directly, but there's there needs to be a little bit of, of the background. So in the United States, there are 21 states and one federal program that can commit sex offenders under somewhat of a mental health commitment uh, a year at a time indefinitely after they have been incarcerated, after they have finished their term. There are also some programs that are community supervision for life. And and then there's Megan's Law, which is an amendment to the Jacob Wetterling Act. And so in that commitment, it is essentially the first time in U.S. history in which a person is essentially locked up for a crime they have yet to commit. Because when these things are done, when people are committed to these facilities, and my facility is one of them, it is, they're not being committed for what they did because that, that's what prison was for. They're being committed to essentially protect the public. And there's a history. And we don't commit or lock up after periods of incarceration, people that have murdered people or manslaughter probably, or, or robbery or assault or anything like that, only with sex offenses. So why is that? And I'm, I'm not arguing for it being that way, I'm just explaining the phenomena, which is that our society, Western society, sees sexual offenses in a different way than other types of offenses. There seem to be particularly cruel particularly personal particularly damaging uh, and and so they're treated in a much different way the, the the Megan's law registration was first happened in New Jersey and there was a young girl six seven or eight years old Megan Kanka who uh, was living across the street from a a registered sex offender, and his name was Jesse Demendequas. And this is all public information. I wasn't involved in this. This is way before my time. And in the late 90s, mid-90s. mid, mid 90s, And he was registered under the Jacob Wetterling Act. And he ultimately raped and killed the young girl. And the parents found out that he was a registered offender and cried out, essentially using the, ju- the legislature to say, why is it that a guy like this could live across the street from us we had the right to know we could have kept our daughter away from him or something to that effect and there was a public outcry and they created megan's law and megan's law is that an individual has to register and there's levels of public notification and we can talk about that you know the different levels that all states are mandated to have Megan's law. they all have Megan's law they apply it slightly different. There must be convictions that qualify under the Megan's law. not all convictions qualify under Megan's law uh, and you know we can talk about that. So now I want to go to the the recidivism rates. So first of all those recidivism rates that that you quoted in that article they're not correct. Uh, well, it depends on how you bend the numbers. But if you take all sex offenders as a group, as a whole, they recidivate at about 11 to 13% over five years or so. But when you break them up on, on in, in different risk categories, the risk rates go from 10% up to 40% over about five years. And that is quite a bit less than other types of offenders. Uh, property offenses Recidivate over nine years, let's say, about 85, 90%. Uh, drug offenses are above 80 uh, uh, All criminal uh, recidivism uh, rates uh, are up to 75%, and sex offenders over 10 years, it can go up to 60%. So it's less. It is less. When you compare a group of uh, assaulters or robbers or uh you know they recidivate at greater rates than than the average group of sex offenders but because society sees it in this different way and laws are created just to, to some degree based on the societal view of the specific behavior then it has come down more heavier on the sex offenders and and, and
0: so and, so you basically say that although this article perhaps skewed the numbers the basic contention is, is, is true, and therefore, I guess it leads to the, the next point, which was that uh, that was being made was that that the um, that the registry, uh, and this I'm just reading from a petition that is now on change.org, that the, they say the the registry protects no one, takes rights away from their citizens. Uh, they paid their debt to society, uh, as defined by the courts, as you heard Rabbi Scheinman say. Um, the, a person who's on that registry can't work, can't live in most areas, cannot use the internet, cannot travel without notifying the police in person, can't have an email address unless they register with the police in person and in writing. Um, wherever they are, more than three days consecutively, they have to register. Um, they aren't allowed into any public parks or pools. They can't attend schools, can't obtain a visa. They have to register their phone numbers in person and writing to the police. They have to register any uh, everything and any changes in writing. Um, and basically, what happens is, as as they have gone on to say, that these this is such a terrible way to rehabilitate someone to keep on punishing them that they're putting them in a position where they have nothing to lose. There's no carrot, in other words, that's that that's being offered at the end of the at the end of their incarceration. Um, so, uh, so therefore, um, this has been this movement. Now, you know, doctor, I know that you know you're not a, a politician, but um, what's your feeling here? Do you do you feel that this is a point and that maybe uh, things do need to be changed in some way?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, what you read is is entirely incorrect and it should just be clarified. Megan's Law account just allows for two things. Registration with the local police department and they have to do it a certain every 3 months or so and annually and they have to notify before they're going to move. That's that's one part of it. That's the Jacob Wetterling Act part of it. And the other part is public notification. And there are three tiers. Tier, tier 1, 2, and 3, based on risk. Tier 1, only the police know. Tier 2, they can uh, advise local organizations, schools, and things of that nature that a sex offender is in their community. And the Tier 3 is now, in today's day and age, being put on the, the registry website of the particular state. It, like I said, how they determine the tiering and uh, some of the other things. Uh, may differ from state to state, but Megan's Law has nothing to do with, uh, you know, them getting a visa or where they would go. There's no restrictions. I mean, somebody on just plain old Megan's Law could go in any theater, or mall, anywhere they want. Uh, so it's that's not entirely correct. But there, there, stu- states do have other acts. I guess they would be acts in that particular state. New Jersey has something called community supervision for life. And all those things do apply to those people, but that's not Megan's law. That's not registration. And they have to reach a certain level of conviction and type of crime to be subject to that under the ruling of a judge. So the judge rules that the person needs to be under this community supervision for life. The judge does not rule for Megan's law because it's a federal mandate. If you have the certain crime that qualifies you, then you're under Megan's law. A judge can't say you're not on Megan's law unless you appeal. And most Megan's laws in most States have an ability to appeal that after 15 or so years of staying clean, if you will, and uh, being low risk, people can, can apply to be removed from that. I'm sure it's very difficult, but, but it can be done. But at any rate, what is this stuff done? Because that article says it's not done anything. So it's not redo. So if you look at these laws have come out in the last 20 years, since the mid nineties and sex offenses have decreased in the last 20 years but all crimes have decreased in the last 20 years except in the last couple of years uh, maybe because of COVID, but that, that's a separate issue. So are these things working? Are they not working can you develop a scientific experiment to run one group annex, uh, uh, against another to see? There's really no way to tell. Uh, there's really no way to tell whether or not it works or not. The
0: point, though, whether it's you know whether all the details are true, it clearly is not uh, a, 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 a way like you can get this thing expunged. You are going to be shackled beyond the years of your incarceration with these restrictions. And in a way, the, I guess the point is, the fact that you can't really enter and you're always going to have these, this, this thing around you, does that, in a way, push the person towards continued antisocial aspects and attitudes? That's really the, the question, Doc.
1: I mean, you're asking me if it's fair. and
0: And do you think, from a psychiatric standpoint, that 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 this is that this that this is the smart option of, of perhaps allowing the person to sometimes to somehow become a a, a more uh, normal member of society or contributing in a, in a more positive way.
1: You know, I, I could say, you know, truly, I only have personal opinions here. I, I don't think that there's a psychiatric opinion. This the, these, these monitoring laws do not push people to do antisocial acts. It, they do not push people to do more sex offenses. It's because people are concerned. I mean, would you want somebody living across the street from you who did what some of these individuals did and that you didn't know about it? I, I mean... I think that's, that's reasonable for society and you know, whether or not it's constitutional or not. I mean, obviously it is because the Supreme Court has heard many cases on this and has decided, but is it, un, I mean, so once again, it goes back to, is it unfair? And that's, that's not really a question for me to answer. That's a question for society to answer. I mean, one could look at it another way. They could have extended the prison sentences for some of these individuals and then they wouldn't be out, but now they're out. They're out earlier than maybe uh, I mean I, I've seen some unusual sentencing in the state of New Jersey. Uh, people have raped multiple people and they plea down to twenty years and do ten and get out eight years I mean I you know I don't know about these things but uh, but it's an alternative to having them incarcerated longer they're able to be out in the community and they have to deal with some of the circumstances that essentially they have created. I mean...
2: Just, just food for thought is that your question, Rabbi Kiba might also apply to the idea of felons because felons are actually sort of locked away from certain rights of citizenship after, after their conviction as a felon. So you really could ask the same question in, in theory.
0: Yeah, and, and we've talked about that and we've had... Convicted felons who weren't sex offenders talk about how how they felt shackled and how they felt um, trapped and how they felt that they weren't able to integrate into society again. But I, I guess you know I guess the reason why there's been a push for the registry to be abolished is because it's more than when I apply for a job; it's that everybody in the, in, on the street knows and. Uh, my, my, there's, there's a greater limitation, although Dr. Decreechie says it isn't as great as what I read. There's a greater um, limitation of where they're even allowed to go. Uh, and therefore, that is something that, you know, again.
1: You but only, only the most severe offenders, uh, for example, child of multiple uh, episodes, a repeated child uh, offender, you know, isn't allowed to live within 500 feet of a school Or go to a, uh, you know, a school where children are present. And I guess, uh, like, like the captain said, I I mean, there's, there's all kinds of felons that can't own firearms, they used to not be able to vote. uh, But again,
0: I I mean,
1: in a way they, they breach the public trust, in a very, very serious way, where there's some concern that they will act out again. Uh, And so you know once again this is a societal issue for society to determine and if they sign all these things and maybe maybe they'll be able to do away with it but uh but i'm not sure that it's entirely entirely off the mark
4: yeah i, I guess the... uh, i just like to um point out that the what you were reading was actually from chicago from illinois and those things are, are all true. I live in Illinois, and I have a meeting with 15, 20 men which are out, which are presently registered offenders, and these are all present uh, for all categories. It's not, it doesn't make a difference. Megan's Law or, re, or or Register for Life in Illinois, it is very, uh, so that, that, that came from the state of Illinois, and those things are all accurate. They're not made up. Uh, things. Maybe they don't apply in New Jersey. Maybe they don't apply in Pennsylvania, New York, and California. But in Illinois, they, they do. In so fact,
0: in time, and you are sensitive to, 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 to the pleas of these individuals who are trying to get things changed. And you could- that,
4: that, that's correct. And uh, it's interesting. I do visit, one of the places I visit I, in Illinois, they have Rushville, the Department of Youth and Services are for civilly committed sex offenders. And they have to go through the evaluations. And I guess different psychiatrists in Illinois do what you do. Yes. And uh, and the, and the, I have a man who was released from the civil commitment because a psychiatrist felt he was, but he's still in house arrest in a home. He cannot move out of that home. He's been there for two years now, and he still goes to treatment. And now he's already 60, and he, he goes through lie detector tests he passed them he goes through treatment he's doing fine and he, he's going in front of a judge in June maybe they're going to put him on the regular quote-unquote uh registry with the men I see which is still restrictive but at least he's on house arrest he's sort of like a step out of Rushville but he spent 13 years after his prison sentence there and and they are and these are men that are getting treated the point is if they're getting treated and then if they're evaluated by a psychiatrist at the risk level is they're no worse than any other male, basically, then why continue you having them with all these restrictions? They've gone through the treatment. He's done extra years in commitment. He's been evaluated. Somebody could check off on him. And, and yet it, it doesn't seem like he's going to get much, much more than he's getting now. Uh, so th- that is the question. I mean, it, it seems to be way overboard. And I don't maybe this is just in Illinois, maybe in other states it's more liberal, but it's really, really oppressive in this state.
0: Let me ask Captain Dan, um, you know, in,
2: in- quick research as we are discussing this and I don't know, I'm, I have to question, I have to question about Scheinman about, you know, whether we're talking about all sex offenses, because I mean, you know, just a quick, a quick perusal of Illinois law indicates that it's sex offenses against minors. Which is exactly what my point was earlier. Is that I think I think we need to be very clear when we discuss sex offenses that you know Megan's law seems to be di- di- uh, seems to be directed at sex offenses against minors, and even then, as the doctor pointed out, it is based on varying degrees of severity. There are Megan's law requirements that have none of the restrictions that you read earlier, Rabbi Kivel I mean, the way you read, I mean, the way that petition was written, it basically sounds as if a person will probably be rearrested as soon as he leaves his front door. And I mean, I think it was made to sound that way, but I think that there was probably an agenda behind that petition. I'm
0: sure, I'm sure there was, I, you know, there's, there's something here that um, uh, you uh our co-host here wanted me to bring up to, uh, to the doctor. And, um, let me. Um, and again, of course, I am not familiar with uh, anything, uh from a personal standpoint in this way. But um, do you? We do know that there have been a lot of high-profile cases of people coming forward, especially, unfortunately, in, in the rabbinic world, against um, against various rabbis and teachers, uh, and they have been found guilty uh, in in a court of law and been sentenced severely. Um, So, and and again, I I know that you're not involved, doctor, in treating them, but I know that you do, I I understand, I think, that you do intake for them uh, when they are first brought uh, to the facility. So, do you believe uh, that there's a, a, a substantial percentage of persons that are serving time now who have been railroaded by their supposed victims, as they claim? Because there are people, and, and I know Yitzchak knows knew a number of them uh, in his uh, in his history as a chaplain uh, in prisons. So, a doctor, can you respond? So, to that?
1: I, I'd like to rephrase that question. I, I, what I see that question a- asking is: are, are there innocent people in prison? Right, and because, think- because that's what, what you're saying. Are there people that are that are uh, that are falsely convicted that didn't do their crimes? I mean, we all know, uh, you know, I, I'm a very active member of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, and they have looked at some of these high profile cases where people have been released from murder convictions 30 years later, because of DNA advances in DNA technology and things of that nature. And so we know that that happens. I mean, we know that it happens. We also know that sometimes people plea to crimes they didn't commit because it's better than the alternative of going forward through trial and risking a much heavier sentence. However, I'd like to think and I think most of us would like to think that in the United States our adversarial system uh, where people are innocent until proven guilty that 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 that, that essentially works. It doesn't mean that it's per- that it's perfect. It things happen. You can't you, you can't develop a system where only the guilty go uh, to prison and everybody that's innocent is truly found to be innocent. I mean, because these things are based on human nature and human nature is not that calculating and uh, precise. And I, I just think, are there people that were railroaded, uh, you know, false accusations? I, I imagine so. Sure. But I, I would hope that that's a very small amount Uh of the actual people that are in prison for their crimes. So do I think that most people who are in prison for their crimes are actually guilty? Yes, I do. I think not everybody, not everybody, so but did, most people. But did, did I misspeak when I said that you were sometimes involved in intake of people who are brought to the facility that you work at? No, like, you did not misspeak, that's okay. correct.
0: So when you've met some of them, have some said, doctor, I'm innocent, I didn't do this, have, have you had people say that to you? And I've, I've been
1: railroaded. Maybe I, most of them say they didn't do it. They say it was lies made up. But the pattern of their behavior uh, of repeated accusations, uh, you know, I liken it to, to to this. If if I go to wor- work in a workplace and they say that Doctor DeCresci stole some pencils, and I say, "Ah, oh, that's ridiculous," you know, you uh, you, know, you you wouldn't necessarily believe them. But if you found out that every place I worked they independently accused me of stealing pencils, you'd think that there's a pretty good chance this guy is stealing pencils. And, and so many of the people that we see on our initial evaluations, they have repeated, people don't end up in commitment centers, typically for one offense, unless it's really heinous, or there's a lot of victims involved. Uh, They have been repeat offenders. So the person says, I didn't do any of my crimes. Uh, I mean, that's not unusual for pe- criminals to say that because they're trying to avoid the the legal outcome for themselves uh, and save face in uh, what is kind of an embarrassing uh, type of crime. But that's that's not unusual. But in 1975, 1988, 1993, 1999, 2005, the guy all had crimes that looked all similar, and were you know where the victims said that the person did behaviors that all the victims said that the person did i mean what is the chances of that is is it possible that the person I, was railroaded I, 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 I think, sure i,
0: I think you, talk, you can really talk for yourself here.
3: there's ones like that where it seems just to me that you know someone has been railroaded sometimes there's a cultural bias uh and then and there are a lot of people who are you know uh supporting this person's innocence and and yet the the judge will refuse to hear anything of it and then i know of other cases where there are people who are indeed guilty and and you know but were they enticed into something uh, through a lot of these sting programs that were not necessarily in the most you know where technically legally it's not entrapment but it's kind of bordering on entrapment within within the legal realms but well, those are two separate things but uh, it's it's like the doctor said, you know. It's not, you know. My I, I, most of the I've worked in two different prisons and in a mental hospital, and all three of them have had a very large amount of sex offenders. And uh, the first one that I worked at, I was a lot more likely to accept that someone was innocent as opposed to uh, now, where again, there's a where I currently work. I'm much less likely to accept, you know, someone's claim of innocence unless it is like you said I mean that that first case I don't know of any plea bargain that was offered but uh I know of cases where people were um, you know they, they be that they their maintain their maintenance of innocence I think we discussed before what do we call that the uh the trial the trial uh
0: penalty, penalty. Trial
3: yeah that that the fact that you went to trial and you didn't you didn't just plead guilty uh, may, means that you're going to get a harsher sentence and and so forth once you're found guilty uh but when i see these cases you know in my current facility of people who uh even at this point if they because uh, they're offered in you know my first facility i worked at was a federal prison there's no parole in the federal prison system my current Position at a state prison. Well, people are on parole. Uh, people are offered parole. They're given a sentence of, let's say, five to ten years or fifteen to thirty years, whatever it is. Uh, that fifteen or that five is when they're eligible for parole. If they don't accept guilt, they're not eligible for parole. If they don't go through their programs, uh, particularly uh, sex offenders or any other programs that are required, which includes, you know, admission of guilt in the program, essentially. Um, they're not really eligible for parole. And so therefore they're really, uh, the fact that they're sticking to their guns, you know, and they're, you know, 28 years into a 15 to 30 year sentence uh, or, or, you know, eight years into a five to 10 year sentence. To me, that kind of points to, well, maybe they didn't really do it. Why are they, you know, are they that, you know, what do they have to lose at this point uh for admitting what they did if they if they actually did it uh all they'll... would you say
0: that there is some substance that someone who seems to have despite the benefits of pleading guilty did not that that should somehow corroborate his um his uh, plea or his uh demand that he is innocent uh do you think that that should really count for something um and or and I guess the second thing is which I want to ask you, um, this, when a person is saying I'm innocent, I'm being railroaded, it's all lies, can you other than the history that you mentioned, can you detect something in your intake with them to show that that it's he's he's not telling the truth based on some like especially if he's being accused of a sexual crime that the person really is. Uh, <laughs> moving towards sexuality in a, in a negative way and is somewhat of a of a of a predator could you tell that uh, despite the fact that he's saying oh that the girl made this lie up about me uh, my stepdaughter is lying or whatever it is it's all a, a plot to get our money
1: uh, do you, you hear know, my point, Doctor? Go yes ahead. i do you know when i when i got out of uh, forensic uh, fellowship and uh, i started working at the as as just a one of the forensic psychiatrist, at the facility that I work at now. And I've been there for 16 years and been a psychiatrist for, for 19. If, you know, I, I thought that I could be able to tell when people were lying. <clears throat> I, th- I think that most people coming out of a psychiatric residency would feel that way. But then you're in the presence of these folks. And you realize over time that they're better lying than you could ever detect. They're better than Robert De Niro's best day, and we have had many guys, uh, many uh, enough to make an impact on me, that had been at our fa- that have been at our facility for twenty years, and they completely denied one of their three crimes or all of them, or and in the fifteenth year of being there, they started admitting to it, and uh, and and I would even ask them why, you know. What, what what kept you from not saying it all this, this time? And basically, I mean, people would say, you know, I I didn't I I didn't want to get in more trouble. I didn't want to. It made me look bad or whatever. I I've learned that there's there's a there's a character profile called uh, whatever you would want to call it. You call a personality disorder called psychopathy. And psychopaths uh, sometimes lie for no reason. There's no logic to what they're doing. They'll tell you that, uh, you know, they, they left school in sixth grade, but I have the documents that say they left in ninth grade. And I'll even show them the documents. I go, no, that's a. I I mean, it just doesn't make sense sometimes. There's nothing to be gained from the lie. What is to be gained is they get one over. That That is something that they gain from that. It's kind of control and manipulation of others, Uh that that some of those individuals can can enjoy. Uh, And so they do it for no particular clear reason. And so uh, there is no way to tell if people are lying or not. I mean, sure, there's obvious ways if people are very nervous or stumbling, they say different things. Every time you talk to them, they give you a different story, a totally drastic different story. I mean, just like a child, you know, What happened to the cookies? Some man came in the house and took it. Well, you know, all the doors were locked. I mean, then you could know that somebody was lying. But if they're sophisticated, like like the psychopathic types, there really isn't any way. There's a body of literature on it, eye movements and things like that. But none of it has been, you know, much greater than chance. We do use polygraphy. That's not admissible in court. It doesn't say whether or not something occurred or not but it does tell you how nervous the person is about what they're saying at the moment. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're lying, but it it may be something to be, to be explored further in therapy, because if you ask them, how many victims do you have? And they say zero, never, I've never, never victimized anybody sexually. And they have a response on the polygraphy. It means that they're nervous. That's what it means. And, uh, and so they're nervous. So maybe there's something there, but once again, as far as I know, there's nothing in law enforcement, anything like that, psychiatric science, any, anything like that, that can determine proof positive if somebody's lying or not. They may believe it themselves. They may lie to themselves, try to protect themselves. Uh, like I said, sometimes it just doesn't make any logical sense.
0: And so there's no, like, psychological, psychiatric tell on saying psychological, psychological is there there's no psychiatric tell that oh this person does have sexual deviant issues right there's no you can't
1: oh yes we we make that we make a diagnosis all the time but i mean if people are straight up lying that they were not involved in a particular offense and they're very convincing about it and they're consistent in their story uh it becomes very difficult you have to look at the pieces of the history of the person's life that and put it together and, and, and make a judgment as to how likely you think it is that that event actually occurred. Just because they said it doesn't occur, that's no surprise at all. I, I mean, like I said, most, most criminals deny uh, their their offenses of any type because, because they're going to get in trouble. Uh, you know, it's kind of human nature to try to protect yourself. But, but as I think we've said, and again, I'm not
0: trying to defend any specific person, but because of this, I, I wouldn't call it a knee-jerk reaction, but instead the protective reaction we have towards sexual crimes in a way causes the um, uh, the uh, accusation to burn very brightly and strong. Even I mean, more- everybody here,
1: Everybody here may remember the, and I don't want to open up a can of worms, but everybody may hear know of the case of the mcmartin case the mcmartin preschool case in california i think that was in the 90s uh where where they were accused of just doing absolutely unbelievably horrific things to children wearing black hoods sacrificing guinea pigs in front of them hiding in caves under the ground and uh and when they got there uh, they ended up you know these people lost a, a very prominent Uh, daycare Uh, they did investigations they bulldozed the place there there was no caves the caves were the little tubes that the kids played in and they believed that the leading questions of the the kind of investigating social workers and mental health folks uh, kind of shaped the the responses of children and it's known that children's responses can be shaped You, you know you can say you know you 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 did say a bracha before you ate that food, did you not? You did do that, right? You know, and the kid wants to please you, so they say, of course, yes. So, I mean, the point b- being that it it had left a doubt in my mind. Of course, I was just a lay person watching this on the TV at the time, and uh, you know that that wow, you know, these people. When I first heard it, I thought they had to they they had to have been guilty. I mean, who? What kid could make up those kinds of stories? They're crazy. But then after the investigation, after everything, what they brought in, which, by the way, changed the way they take testimony from children, they video it, they don't keep asking the child, you know, it's all viewed. Uh, we learned stuff from that, that, that I thought, oh, my God, these people lost their, they lost their standing in the community, their business and everything. And there was really not a lot of evidence that they actually did anything wrong.
3: I, w- I want to ask another question. It's, it's, it's just something that came up today wasn't a sex offender but it, it was someone who is totally convinced that he's innocent i i i don't believe him whatsoever but he's a mentally ill person and how often is there an element of delusion in the, in a criminal case where the person due to a mental illness due to delusion believes believes themselves to be innocent when when they're really very very clearly guilty is that something you you encounter very often?
1: I, I mean, in my line of work, uh, you know, o- almost ne- almost never, you know, because people that were, I mean, this is a, a crude example, but it was the only way I could get my point across. If somebody was raping women because they needed to impregnate all uh, all redhead women so that they could bring the new Mashiach to the mothership of the outer planets or something like that, then they wouldn't, they, they wouldn't be a typical sex offender. They'd, they'd be found probably not guilty by reason of insanity. They'd go to another place. And, uh, but how many people can believe their lies strongly, their own justifications and cognitive distortions for the thoughts that, that, that justify the crimes that they do, not truly psychiatrically delusional, but very strongly held dysfunctional distortions, many of them. Many of them have that.
2: I, I think, I think it's, worth, it's worth noting two main points here that I think they're sort of like one is, one is a, I think it's an undercurrent of the discussion that has taken place in the last 10 minutes. Number one, I mean, just for my own personal experience of the dozens upon dozens of people I arrested, none of them were guilty when I asked, none of them. So either either I am a terrible cop Or maybe there's another message to take out of that. But more to the point, I think, that is of concern to me is that I think our community, which is generally upstanding, law-abiding citizenry, and then all of a sudden we're faced with a staggering contradiction where a terrible accusation is being made, I think a lot of our community has a knee-jerk reaction of cheskas kashrus. And, you know, it's a concern, especially when it comes to this particular opinion, because that has been used many times, much as this question has been used, that it's like, well, wait a minute, this person is probably being railroaded. And unfortunately, I think statistically, and again, the doctor may know better than me, I think it's very rare to find children of any age group that will pursue doggedly some type of a accusation of this particular type against someone simply for the purpose of railroading them. And yet you hear that so often in our community and it's really, really problematic because it really allows people I think to avoid what may be the instead what may be, be the obvious truth that is staring us all in the face, but no one really wants to go there.
3: I, I, I uh, today I was discussing this case that I just mentioned. Walder
0: case and many other high-profile cases have uh, really, I think it, we've turned the tide on that. I think that we've uh, we've come extremely, you know, even in, in, in the Orthodox world, um, very sensitive and, and protective, and I think that. Um, Although you say that you know we still hear these type of defenses raised i don't think they're being raised in the same way anymore. I think there's been tragically too much um, of these events occurring uh, however uh what when I was talking of what i my question was not that most of the people have been railroaded. The question is are uh, what did the doctor think were what type of credence can we give to the people who, you know to some of the people who've been saying that because as, as Rabbi Shaiman and, 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 and Rabbi Kolakowski know, they hear these things consistently. Like you say, we hear them, and we do. We would like to think that we're doing more than just uh, acting out of an extreme sense of caution. We like to think that what we're doing is, is generally, as, as Dr. DeCreece says, we are living in a society which is generally, you know, going in the right path. And although this is a program that is dedicated to criminal justice reform, I think there's a consensus here of most everyone here tonight that this, although Rabbi Scheiman, I think, is saying that we need to take a hard look, especially in Illinois, about these laws uh, of the registry, Um, I'd say I guess the rest of the panel here thinks that things are pretty much the best uh, uh, of, of the system the way they could be right now. Can, can we say that? In this, you know, in terms of before we sign off tonight, would you say that things are, you know, that they don't need a massive change or restructure this area?
1: Um, well, I, I think what needs to be done in this area, I think it's, I think it's happening. Uh, you know, society is less tolerant of sexual violence towards children and women than probably. I mean, I venture to say, up there, uh, you know. More, it's, we're more sensitive to those things than any other time in human history. I mean, these things are commonplace throughout all of history and and they're less uh, acceptable now than they ever have been. And so, you know, I don't think it's fair. One, one couldn't say that we're going down the bad path that way. But I think education is ultimately, education and shaping societal attitudes really is what will change that, And that means you know, pr- you know, fostering an attitude that these behaviors, uh, uh, that victimizing others for one's own needs is, is not okay, uh, to promote awareness in uh, school-age programs, uh, like at the program that my uh, children are part of, they recently introduced stuff about uh, safety, and as part of that, safety was, you know, not, not allowing bad touches, and, uh, you know, I was quite impressed, that they did that. I think that's what needs to be done, that victims need to be supported and, and when, when they come forward, uh, and there needs to be transparency. <clears throat> I mean, everybody here, it's no surprise to anybody here that closed communities, often religious communities, uh, have hid that type of behavior in you know uh religions outside of our own as well as our own and have tried to deal with that stuff and not 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 incredibly effective and it doesn't support the victims when it occurs that way and and that the transparency of uh you know really prosecuting these kinds of things is you know as far as i can see the, the a way to go
0: sure and and and, and Dan, I would say that you probably agree uh, pretty much wholeheartedly, correct?
2: I, I certainly, yes. I, I think that I, I agree with much of what the doctor said, especially in terms of uh, the fact that we are, you know, we are dealing with adjudication and we're doing the best we can. And I think, it, and I, I totally agree, it's not perfect. Uh, and yet, I think that we get it right most of the time. And I, even the example that he gave uh, back in the 90s with McManus, I, I believe it, it's very clear that we learned a lot of lessons from that. And we've taken our investigations to the next level as a result of it. So that too is true. So yes, we, we are constantly learning. And I would even agree that, you know, much as like say when I was a police, when I was a new police officer in the 80s, Domestic violence was the issue then where domestic violence used to be poo pooed, And when I started in the 80s, all of a sudden, it was no longer poo pooed. You could no longer get away with, oh, yeah, he just did. He took care of business at home. No, that was no longer the issue. And I think that we are now coming around to this idea with, uh, you know, with children as well. And I think, uh, you know, some in some cases, the pendulum might be swinging a little bit too far. Me too, for example, but I mean, needless to say, I think that we are doing the best we can. And I don't know that, you know, I don't know that I've heard anything that would change my mind on that. This evening.
4: I would like to add a point on the education where uh, at least we're working this in, in, in the Jewish community in Chicago to try to educate people that it's actually not the people on the registry that their kids are unsafe from. Those are probably the least likely people that children are going to have a problem. And most of the problems, at least in the Jewish community, are from brothers, uncles, somebody they know. And they've, they've, the, the registry only gives a false sense of security. Oh, we're safe because those guys aren't coming around, whereas th- their children are not safe. And it's from the very, their very own loved ones. And like uh, Dan said, like, you know, people, oh, we can get away with it. We'll just say we're being railroaded and people will close their eyes. And so there has to be a lot of education and also educating our teenagers. Stay off those phones. Watch where you go, because you could end up on the sex registry, my dear son. It's not that hard. Right,
0: And and again, so again, in terms of the family, you're right. This is something that and this is the type of thing, which unfortunately, because if most of the perpetrators are from the family, there's going to be not just the community covering up the family is going to work very hard not to sort of like put all their 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 terrible dirty laundry out there and therefore you know these these uncles and brothers and and others you know probably unless something happens to them later in life are going to be free to keep on
3: unfortunately
4: unfortunately m- many of these cases go unreported
3: right yeah, and that is the yeah. yeah. so I, I, I don't know I don't know if we mentioned this week is Victims' Rights Awareness Week, so it's very apropos that we had we this discussion events. tonight. And we
0: definitely speak about this, and, and even a subject which which many people find uh, difficult to to talk about. And uh, but I, I'm happy that we were able to speak about, it, especially with people uh, who are so well qualified in this area. Doctor, it was really uh, illuminating, and it was great to be corrected and to understand that stuff that we just pull off the internet is usually wrong. I think we know that as rabbis, we know that, but we need to really know that as well, even when it comes to uh, these hot button topics, uh, that everything needs to be questioned and understood. And you've been really great for giving, you, uh, giving us so much of your time and, and your expertise tonight. Thanks to everybody else here. We'll catch you hopefully soon, maybe uh, in a couple of weeks from now. Take care, everybody. Be well.
1: Thank you. Thanks for the honor.